Hoy hoy, my fair listeners. I'm John Miller, and this is Everybody Trades. And if you're listening to this, and you're in the Midwest, congratulations on surviving a polar vortex. By surviving, I do mean that both literally and figuratively. That was an insane bit of cold, wasn't it? If you're like me, if you're in Missouri, you're going, oh, thank God, we're up to the 40s now. I can actually get outside again. It's amazing. And if you're in Chicago, you're even happier. And if you're in North freaking Dakota or Canada, woo, and you're in the middle of this huge landmass we call North America, you couldn't be more happy to finally get some relief from this madness. Am I right? And if you're like, again, if you're like me, you've been holed up in your house or your office for the most part. But you know what? One thing I've been thinking about a lot during this period especially to those people in North Dakota. There's a lot of people who don't have the option of just staying inside all day, do they? No, in fact, the great dairy farmers of North Dakota, and I'm going to be honest with you straight up, I'm not a dairy farm expert. I don't know all the ins and outs of dairy. But here's what I do know. I know that that process is not so automated that a human being is no longer required. So what that means, if you're a dairy farmer and it's negative 45 degrees and it's 5 a.m., you still have your appointed rounds. There's nobody who's going to go out and do that for you. There is no government program that is going to make sure that your cows are milked and fed and whatever else you need to do for your cows. In fact, you've probably got to gather them into a barn, hopefully a heated barn with that kind of weather. Again, not going to sit here and pretend like I know all the ins and outs of dairy farming. But what I do know, once again, is that we need some hardy, tough son of a bitches up in North Car- I'm sorry, North Dakota and various other cold, cold, cold parts of this country and this planet to make us food. Now, why do they do that? If I'm not willing to get out of bed for practically any reason during this crappy weather, Why should I expect some guy in North Dakota to get his butt out of bed and milk the cows and put on his good Carhartt gear and his goggles so his eyeballs don't get get frostbite? Why should we expect him to do this for us? Well, I'd argue that we don't expect it, but it's something we just completely take for granted as people who live in America in particular. So we have so much food in this country, and it's so easy for us to get, both at the grocery store, restaurants, fast food, farmer's markets, whatever it might be, butcher box. Heck, you can get food through the mail now. You don't even have to leave your house. But again, that guy in North Dakota, he's got to get off his duff. Well, you know what? Even though he does it, ultimately, you get the fruits of his labor He's not doing it for you. No, that farmer's doing it for himself. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, you see, he's trying to make some profit. Yes, that's right. I'm going to talk about profit, people. Gather around, everybody. Because you see, what is profit? It means that you've saved something for yourself after having farmed and grown food and cultivated and milked and maintain your cows, whatever it might be. If I'm getting a gallon of milk 
from your farm, it's not because you love me. I know that the, this this farmer I'm talking about, whatever farmer it might be, I've never met anyone from North Dakota. So these people don't give two craps about me, nor should we expect them to. Again, if I'm, I shouldn't expect anybody to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do. But what I'm getting at here is so many people will take profit motive and the self-interest motive and turn it into selfishness. See, it's quite the opposite in my opinion. See, the deal with self-interest is we all are motivated by self-interest. Now, of course, self-interest can be a sliding scale of subjective values. What's in my self-interest might not be in your self-interest, et cetera, et cetera. But what it is, it's not selfishness when you decide that I'd like to save in order to give my family a better life. It's not a selfish move to save in order to weather a winter, to weather a storm, to weather bad times, to have savings in order to invest in the future. But for those of you who are counting other people's money and who are saying that, no, you're saving too much and you're not investing enough, well, that's very easy for you to say, isn't it? You didn't put in the time and sweat equity necessary to build the capital that the person at the dairy farm did. You see, people who are jealous of owners, quote-unquote, of owners of capital, are always going to look at the end result and say, that guy in North Dakota, boy, he sure has a big ranch, doesn't he? He sure has a nice house, doesn't he? Sure seems like he's got more savings than I do. See, all of that is is the politics of envy. And envy has been around as a negative in human culture for at least as long as the Bible, right? So thousands of years, humans have talked about how envy is bad. But now we're currently politicizing envy. How's that working out for us so far? See, if all we're going to do is be envious at the person who worked his butt off, who got up at negative 35 degrees and milked the cows for himself, by the way, I grant you that. I grant that he did it for himself and not for us. But what's the result? The result is we have abundance of milk in America. Yes, you can go to the store right now, buy two gallons of milk, or I guess a gallon of milk, for under $3, right? So again, I suppose in a fantasy world, in a world with rain with unicorns and gumdrops on lollipop lane that everyone would be not self-motivated that people would all be motivated to help others just as much as they would help themselves that would be a nice fantasy scenario but the reality is is nobody is ever going to care more about you than yourself with the hopeful exception of your parents but again that's kind of the self too, isn't it? When your parents care more about you than even themselves, well, you're an extension of the self. You're an extension of your parents' self. So again, this all fits in with human nature. Now, my point is we can either fight against human nature tooth and nail and and in some ways lean into the worst parts of human nature, like envy, and you know what that's going to accomplish? Absolutely nothing. Me sitting around and being envious of the guy in North Dakota and his nice house and his beautiful wife and his ranch that he may or may not have, that does nothing for me. But 
magically this guy who doesn't envy me, doesn't care about me, doesn't know me, doesn't know me from Adam, he seems to have no problem getting up and indirectly working for me every day. Am I supposed to be upset because he doesn't do it emotionally for me? I don't think so. I'm much more concerned about the results. And again, the results are abundance. When we let people grow whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and then when they save enough, when they have a surplus, an abundance of said crop, said gallons of milk, we allow them to then sell it to the rest of us. And hopefully we have done something productive as well. And we're also adding value to the economy, to our communities as well. But if we're just going to sit around while the hardworking people get out and it's negative 20 and we sit in our heated houses and then also point fingers at them, that to me looks like a recipe for the collapse of polite society. And you know what? Speaking of the collapse of our entire society, (laughs) how's that for a transition? Something's been vexing me a tiny bit lately or just sticking in my craw, and that is the people who sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly, but I'm going to put a little, I'm going to help you guys out here. The people who are really concerned about a, quote, common set of facts, and gosh darn it, we used to all essentially believe the same thing is what they're saying, and we used to all get our news from the same place, and isn't it just a shame that we have all this disparate information and too many outlets that are telling us too many things and we no longer have a common set of facts. Well, I'm going to push back against that idea a little bit. See, actually, I think for the most part, humans, and especially in this country, are quite good at facts. It's just, in my opinion, facts are much more narrowly defined than what the people are saying who are talking about a common set of facts are actually talking about. For instance, what is a fact? Well, I'll give you one. Let's stick with the economics of cold theme that I've been starting off with here. Who is the first person to patent the modern furnace system in America? Well, that's a fact. That person is Alice H. Parker. Yes? Have you heard of... My first question is, have you heard of Miss Alice Parker? And if the answer is no you're probably going to find that a little bit surprising because here's the thing with Alice Parker. She's an African-American woman who invented the furnace in the early 20th century. Now, you would think, especially in an era where we like to champion diversity and diversity of color, diversity of gender, diversity of ideas. Oh, wait. No, actually, we're actually not good with that. Never mind. Back up. No, we like diversity of people looking different. Well, certainly Miss Alice Parker in the early 20th century, around 1919, when she patented her idea for the modern furnace, well, Miss Parker certainly looked different and was much more diverse ethnically than most of the people who are in the HVAC invention business, for instance. Let's put it that way. There weren't a lot of African-American women at the time who were getting patents on really impressive inventions by the U.S. government. Now, you see, while Parker made her invention in the early part of the 20th century, it didn't ultimately get really widespread 
adoption with a few modifications until some years later. But her invention was truly revolutionary. When you go back and look at her idea, her whole thing was, hey, put ducting throughout a building, and then you'll be able to force air, force this warm air throughout the whole building. That is indeed 100 years later, we're still using essentially that design to this day. So my point is, if this is the type of person that you would think that the public school dynamic that our modern society would hoist up onto a pedestal, right? Well, I'm going to ask you, did you go to public school? I went to public school. And if you would have asked me a couple years ago who Alice Parker is, I would have had absolutely no idea because I was never taught who she was. And I'm guessing if you know who Alice Parker is, you probably didn't learn it at public school either. Now, my question is why? Well, I have a theory. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for my theory? Because you might not like it, but here it is. Now, you see, the public schools are, wait for it, yes, their content is controlled directly by the governments, federal, state, etc. There are guidelines through multiple jurisdictions there. But, of course, regardless, any public institution, are they going to say that, hey, the government is awesome, or are they going to say, hey, the government's terrible? Or to put it more precisely, how do you think that they're going to give you the history of racism in this country? See, essentially, what the public schools tell us is that racism got a lot better in this country after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And before that, essentially nothing good ever happened with race relations. No progress was ever made whatsoever. Well, I would argue even if, without getting into a chicken or egg thing, even if that were true, even if I accept that premise, we'd still need a massive shift in public sentiment in order for those representatives to go along with said legislation. Am I right? Well, here's the deal with Alice Parker. Here's where she comes in. Obviously, if she was inventing brilliant things and getting them indeed patented by the U.S. government at that time, that doesn't really fit the premise of what I just explained, that nothing good ever happened or that black people couldn't possibly accomplish anything in America before 1964. And that's essentially the premise. Now, am I sitting here and telling you that everything was grand and fine and dandy for black people in the early 20th century America, in Jim Crow America? Of course not. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is, is if your premise is that you couldn't possibly do anything before the Civil Rights Act, you're just going to yada, yada, yada Alice Parker's contributions to, to our society instead of lionizing them, instead of putting them up on a pedestal. See, I'm the one who wants to put Alice Parker on a pedestal, so don't get mad at me. Get mad at the people who would bury her history who would want you to not even know that she ever existed. Why isn't she an important figure? I think she's an extraordinarily important figure, regardless of her race or gender. I think the race and gender part is a really interesting and fascinating addendum to her whole story. But it's not 100% the whole story, is it? Because if she were just a regular person, we wouldn't have any reason to know who she is. But no, it's because she contributed something so profound to our society, to our people's well-being. I mean, she's literally saved people's lives with this invention.
increase people's productivity exponentially, which also increases people's standard of living and their life expectancy. Alice Parker is a fucking hero. So don't tell me about how I'm not woke, okay? I'm trying to wake all of you up. And if you think I'm being crazy, just go to her Wikipedia page. Really, type in Alice Parker, go to her Wikipedia page. There's like five or six sentences there. Now, you can say what you want about Wikipedia and its accuracy or lack thereof. It's a great indication of where the mainstream society is on any various topic. And all this says, what this will tell you, if there's five or six sentences, there's one paragraph, essentially, on somebody who I've, I think I've done a pretty good job of, of making the case at just how important Miss Parker is and was to human existence, not just America, but indeed humanity. And yet she gets five or six sentences. So you tell me where I'm wrong. You tell me where I am wrong. So again, getting back to the difference of fact and opinion. Well, have you ever heard the phrase, and I'm sure you have, that history is written by the victors? Well, if that's the case, that sort of belies the idea that there's a common set of so-called facts. Because that whole phrase, history is written by the victors, that tells you that the losing side would have a different take on what history actually is. Now, if we can't even agree on history, it shouldn't be a huge surprise that people have a different opinion on the results of any conflict, any legislation, all types of different things. See, we can say for a fact that Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7th, 1941. But can we then say with can we say it's a fact that it was necessary to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Certainly that's the history that has been written by the victors. But does that make it true? Would the people who lived in Hiroshima and Nagasaki agree with that assessment? So I don't know how we can actually say that that's a fact then. What's my point here? Well, the point is if we're going to take somebody like Alice Parker, who is at worst a harmless person, a harmless figure in American and world and human history, and at best is, in my opinion, a evolutionary figure in terms of, again, human life expectancy, quality of living, everything, and how just have, having access to warm buildings helped everybody's productivity and the unseen amount of other things that that led to the creation to is incalculable. It's exponential. Okay? So if we're going to erase Alice Parker from the history books, don't you think that maybe that common set of facts maybe is a little bit overrated? If the common set of facts did not have room for Miss Alice Parker, then what other things did the common set of facts not have room for? See, my guy Tom Woods likes to say the three-by-five card of allowable opinion. Well, that's where we are in this culture. We have an index card of allowable opinions. And apparently Alice Parker didn't make the cut. So I want you all to think about that for a while. The next time you hear somebody droning on about... 
oh, it's so bad that we just don't have a monopoly of information now in the media and a common set of facts. And boy, isn't it terrible that all these people have podcasts and YouTube channels and stuff. Well, selfishly, I'm not going to agree with that, but I'd like to think that intellectually, none of you would agree with that either. And hey, thanks for joining me once again on Everybody Trades. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Until next time, everybody.